I spy with my little eye. Democrats threatening our republic as the Mueller investigation into Roger Stone's niece's lemonade stand from 1996 enters into its fifth decade. The White House is finally pushing back as it should, because the more we learn about the Russia investigation, the clearer it becomes that it's a farce initiated by Barack Obama's corrupt, crooked machine administration. We will analyze the facts as they stand today. They seem always to be changing, but we'll analyze what we have. Then Google stops telling its employees not to be evil. (laughs) We're going to analyze what that means for conservatives. Starbucks goes full homeless shanty, uh, what that says about our culture, and the incredible stories of American soldiers escaping Nazi-occupied France on this day in history. And if we have time, we'll talk about the royal wedding. Gosh, it was awful. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. So much to get to today, beginning with just eviscerating the Obama administration. Day after day, we realize how corrupt and crooked all of them right up to the top were. We'll also be joined later by Carol Engel Avriet, the author alongside 94-year-old World War II Captain George Starks of a new book, The Coffin Corner Boys, One Bomber, Ten Men, and Their Harrowing Escape from Nazi-Occupied France. Really enjoyed it. Before we get to any of that, let's talk about hair. Let's talk about hair. You know, I'll tell you guys, I love Keeps. Keeps is a great product, a wonderful sponsor of the show. They help keep the lights on. They help keep hair on your head. I am not exactly a giant Adonis of a man, you know. I'm a relatively moderate-sized fella. I never played on the football team or anything like that. But I was always not doing so terrible with the ladies because I have big, poofy, thick hair. You got to keep your hair. It's designed for guys. Keeps for guys who want to stop hair loss with their scientific and affordable approach managed entirely on keeps.com. Keeps is the easiest way to stop hair loss before it's too late. There are two aspects here. One, it really does work. A lot of these products promise everything in the world and they don't work, but Keeps really does work. Keeps offers the only two FDA approved hair loss products clinically proven to keep the hair you have. No BS, just science. The other aspect here is it's completely safe. There are generic uh, versions of medications that have been around for a long time, but these are way, way cheaper, way easier to get. Most guys start to lose their hair, two thirds of guys, by the time they're 25 to 35. For five minutes now, you just go on, it's five minutes, it's a dollar a day or less. You'll never have to worry about hair loss again. Do it. Seriously, guys, sign up takes uh, less than five minutes. Uh, These are the generic versions of the only two FDA approved hair loss products out there. Uh, 10 to $35 a month. Stop hair loss today the easy way with keeps and now get your first month free. Don't say I never did nothing for you. You know, my wedding's coming up and I'm giving you a wedding present. I don't know. I'm a very generous fella. To receive your first month of treatment for free, go to keeps.com slash covfefe, C-O-V-F-E-F-E, covfefe. Also, that's a good stimulant for hair too. Uh, That is K-E-E-P-S dot com slash covfefe, C-O-V-F-E-F-E. Free month of treatment at keeps.com slash covfefe. Keeps hair today, hair tomorrow. Okay. So there is a lot going on here. You might've seen the tweet over the weekend from Donald Trump. President Trump tweeted out, he goes, quote, I hereby demand and will do so officially tomorrow that the Department of Justice look into whether or not the FBI slash DOJ infiltrated or surveilled the Trump campaign for political purposes. And if any such demands or requests were made by people within the Obama administration. Now, this caused me to remember one of my favorite Obama tweets. He tweeted this a while ago. 
It's just the absolute incredible troll levels of Barack Obama. It's a photo, it's a photo of him with a magnifying glass looking in at a girl. And the, and the tweet just says, I spy, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> he told you right there, you know, <laughs> he said he did it. He, so uh, he tweets that. Uh, finally, Donald Trump is getting really hard. I think the timing here is important. But for a long time, we've been told, look, the Mueller investigation, it's just the FBI. They're not politically motivated. It's objective. They're just trying to get to the facts. Nobody's politically motivated here. Come, nobody's stealing the election. Come, nobody's blah, blah, blah. In fact, when Donald Trump suggested on the campaign trail that there might be some shenanigans going on behind the scene, Hillary Clinton vigorously denied those rigged election claims. Here is campaign Hillary. It's horrifying. You know, every time Donald thinks things are not going in his direction, he claims whatever it is is rigged against him. Uh, the FBI conducted a year-long investigation into my emails. They concluded there was no case. He said the FBI was rigged. This is a mindset. This is, this is how Donald thinks. And it's funny, but it's also really troubling. Really troubling terrifying, horrifying. By the way, we'll get into how the FBI handled Hillary versus how the FBI handled Donald Trump because it is night and day. And it's total evidence that Hillary Clinton was lying through her teeth here. It's ironic, of course, because immediately after the election, she's, you know, she says, it's all rigged. It's all terrible. This wasn't even a one-off line. This wasn't even just something she said on, on the debate stage. Hillary Clinton kept lecturing people. Here she is uh, at a campaign rally. On Wednesday night, Donald Trump did something no other presidential nominee has ever done. He refused to say that he would respect the results of this election. Now, make no mistake, by doing that, he is threatening our democracy. Look, if you lose an election, I've lost elections, you don't feel very good the next day, do you? But we know in our country the difference between leadership and dictatorship, right? What, what she didn't tell you is that she's the dictator. <laughs> it kind of sounds in that clip like she's saying, you know, I prefer democracy. No, no, no. <laughs> because immediately after the election, when she lost, she went, you know, before she said, well, look, this, sometimes people lose. You got to lose. You got to deal with it. And then after she lost, I believe she said, if I could quote correctly, it was, it was, I might be paraphrasing. She starts to blame everybody. She says that Russia rigged the election. She undermined the legitimacy of that election. She, she implied that it was illegitimate. What is she doing now? We're now, what, two years in, almost two years in. She keeps flying overseas criticizing the administration, criticizing Donald Trump, uh, saying, uh, you know, that uh, he's undermining the U.S. on the world stage, that she doesn't support the policy of her own country, really unpatriotic stuff. She's one of the best among them as far as undermining the, the Republican administration goes. She's positively restrained compared to other leading Democrats. Her uh, husband's former vice president, Al Gore, he just recently told University of Maryland graduates at uh, their commencement that Donald Trump needs to be removed from office forcibly. Here he is. And I get it. There are, I know, a great many supporters of President Trump in this audience. I do understand that. As one of his uh, supporters put it on television, 
He said, the way I look at it, Donald Trump is chemotherapy for America. Well, in medicine and in science, some experiments are terminated early for ethical reasons. Zing. Good one, Al. You get it? Terminated early for ethical reasons. So not a great joke. Didn't, didn't really land. But also interesting to hear, he says, I know some of you support the president. We're at University of Maryland. This is not exactly a conservative campus, you know, big state school, East Coast. And yet when he said that, people, people start cheering. You're, yeah, you're, you're right, buddy, because Donald Trump is doing well. He's got good approval ratings. Uh, everything is going well domestically and overseas, other than the ginned up controversies that the federal bureaucracy and the Democrats keep trying to throw on him. But in reality, things are going very well. Uh, but then he says, sometimes uh, in science, treatment has to be terminated early for ethical reasons. Now, what he's saying, he's trying to make a joke, but he's also saying something. We need to terminate this presidency early. We need to do it. We lost the election, but we can't tolerate that we lost the election. We can't abide that. The American people wanted something, but we know it's not good for them. We know it's not good. So we need to terminate it early. And this is part and parcel of Democrats' strategy to try to impeach the president. This is not a conspiracy. This is not, to quote Hillary Clinton, a vast right-wing conspiracy. Democrats have been speaking openly and holding press conferences about how they want to impeach the president. Why? I don't know, because they don't like him, because they just don't like him that much. Uh, here we have Representative Steve Cohen talking about how they're, they're going to impeach the president. I'm proud to stand here with my friend, Congressman Gutierrez, with other Congress people who will be here uh, in announcing that we're introducing articles of impeachment to remove President Trump from office. There will be, uh, I believe, six signatories on the resolution. Democrats only respect elections when Democrats win. That's when they respect elections. Democrats only respect democracy when Democrats win democratic elections. It's as simple as that. They do not respect the electoral process. In fact, the Democrats have been trying to subvert the electoral process since long before this election. We know that now. They denied it at the time. They lied to our faces at the time, all the way up to the top. But now we know that. Bombshell information now shows that Barack Obama's FBI interfered with and spied on Donald Trump's campaign much earlier than anybody thought. We know that the FBI planted a spy in the Trump campaign. That, we have evidence of that. They've been denying it the whole time. Now we, it's just slowly over the last year and a half, it's chiseled away at their narrative. They're, they are liars. We, they have no credibility. When they open their mouths, James Comey, Barack Obama, Loretta Lynch, when they open their mouths, there is no reason to believe a word that comes out of them. They are public liars. So we know that. We, we also know that uh, James Comey lied about when the Russia investigation started. James Comey said that the Russia investigation began in late July 2016. Okay, well, what was that based on? In part, I suppose it's based on that uh, Steele dossier, which was totally ginned up and paid for by the Hillary Clinton campaign and by Democrats. So we see collusion there between the Democrats and the FBI. But now we know that an FBI informant who has been outed, according to reports, as Cambridge University professor Stephen Halper, uh, that FBI report, uh, informant started reporting to the FBI in early July 2016. Totally undercuts James Comey. And we know that James Comey lied about this. He says the investigation began in late July, and yet the FBI's informant, they snuck into the Trump campaign to spy on it, 
That guy was reporting back to the FBI by early July. The timelines don't add up. Who, who is this guy? Who is Halper? Professor Halper is a longstanding Republican. Halper worked in the Nixon administration, the Ford administration, the Reagan administration. And this guy was sent in by the FBI to spy on Trump employee Carter Page and uh, campaign employee George Papadopoulos. He went in there and spied on both of those guys. Now, did he just do it out of the goodness of his heart? No. We know that uh, the FBI paid Halper, the federal government paid Halper, $411,000 between 2016 and 2017. To put that in perspective, that's more than the annual salary of the president of the United States. Well, it's much more than the, the annual salary of the current president of the United States, who doesn't take any money for his job. He takes a dollar a year or something. But the president, by law, is supposed to make $400,000 a year. This FBI informant was paid $411,000 between 2016 and 2017. What was he doing for that? What, why was the FBI, why was the national security apparatus investing so much money in this guy, this guy who's going in to spy on the Republican nominee's campaign for president of the United States? FBI under the administration of a Democrat, Barack Obama, this guy's being paid a ton of money to go in and spy on the Republican. Now, some of the Trump critics, even on the right, they can't admit the gross injustice of all of this. Nominal Republican Eric Erickson, who used to run redstate.com, he tweeted out, quote, so a question, how does one infiltrate a political campaign as more than a menial volunteer? I mean, if someone got on payroll in the main office and was a spy, that reeks of incompetence on the campaign's part. Doesn't Trump only hire the best people? Like he's making excuses for Obama's FBI, which is spying on the Republican campaign. This is a nominal Republican who's doing this. He would have been a good defense attorney for Alger Hiss. That, that is, that's crazy. This guy is a, a well-credentialed, a former employee of Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan. He's a respected academic. Just because he's duplicitous and deceptive doesn't mean that you'd have to be foolish to to speak to him. That's not what that means at all. This guy is a longstanding Republican political operative. He's a guy who's well-respected in academic circles. I don't think it's crazy to let that guy in and have some meetings with him. Well, you don't have to be a bumbling idiot to do that. The story here is not on the incompetence of the Trump campaign. This guy was a three-time White House uh, staffer. What the story is here is on the duplicity and the deception of Barack Obama's national security apparatus and Barack Obama's investigative agencies. So we know at this point, it's just a side note, we know because this, the anti-Trump stuff is crazy. It's craziest from the people on the right because it totally misses the point absolutely misses the point. When you've got these egregious crimes being committed by the left and by the federal bureaucracy, and they say, yeah, but you know, Trump, he's a dummy, isn't he? Like, guys, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? The Democrats and the federal bureaucracy are trying to undermine the duly elected conservative Republican president of the United States, and you're taking their side? Are you kidding me? So we know the official story is BS. James Comey lied. John Brennan lied not just Comey, the FBI director, John Brennan, CIA director for Barack Obama. John Brennan, by the way, Barack Obama's CIA director who voted for the Communist Party nominee for president in 1976. Somehow under Barack Obama, this guy gets to be in charge of the CIA. That We could do a whole show on, on talk about incompetence or nefarious motives. So John Brennan, Barack Obama's CIA director, he knows that he lied and he's getting nervous. He tweets this out today. He tweets, quote, 
Senator McConnell and Speaker Ryan, if Mr. Trump's continues along this disastrous path, you will bear major responsibility for the harm done to our democracy. You do a great disservice to our nation and the Republican Party if you continue to enable Mr. Trump's self-serving actions. You getting nervous there, John? Is that what's going on? (laughs) You know, because you sound like you're getting a little nervous. Why would you be getting nervous? Because John Brennan, Obama's CIA director, said that the Democrat cooked up Steele dossier was not used as the basis for the Russian investigation. He didn't know anything about it. I don't know anything about that Steele dossier, except we later found out he did know about the Steele dossier, and he talked to a lot of people about the Steele dossier, and he was spreading it all around D.C. CNN has even admitted that the FBI used the dossier as justification to begin spying on the Trump campaign. Even CNN admits that. When CNN admits something damaging to Democrats, you just can't deny it anymore. It is beyond the point at which you can deny it. Now, still the timelines don't quite add up, do they? Did the investigation begin in late July? Did it begin in early July? It looks like it began at both times. Some people gave the go-ahead here. Some people gave the go-ahead here. It doesn't really matter. Because now, by the, mark my words, what Democrats are going to try to do is say, well, the Republicans are saying it began at two different times, and so that doesn't add up. The fact that you can point to two different times when it officially began, and the official statements of Obama administration employees saying, oh, it began here, it began here, it began here, what it really points out is that, broadly speaking, the Obama administration was determined to help Hillary Clinton and hurt Donald Trump. How are they going to do it? They're going to send in spies to the Trump campaign. They'll do that. That's one way. And then, okay, we got this dossier that Hillary funded. Okay, we're going to go, we're going to use that. We're going to, but we're going to get him. We're going to go get him because that's how Barack Obama used his government. Barack Obama, I know this. I'm a member of an organization that was targeted by Barack Obama's IRS, a a, a relatively right-wing organization, nonprofit organization Uh, was targeted by Barack Obama's IRS while he was targeting many others. He did it because he used the government to get his political opponents. Looks like he did the same thing here. Bill Clinton met with then Attorney General Loretta Lynch on her airplane while that plane was parked at the Phoenix tarmac. Walks on the plane. Later they say, oh, we're just talking about our grandkids. So really, the former president met with the sitting attorney general who's about to investigate his wife for deleting federal records and mishandling classified material. You guys were just talking about your grandchildren, right? That's what you're doing. Oh, they're good. Okay. Anything else we're going to talk? No, I guess not. Okay. Walks off the plane. No way. When that meeting leaked, because they tried to hide it from the public, when that meeting leaked, the FBI scrambled to identify and punish the source of the leak. That's according to another leak that came out last December. And a a leak not reported by the right-wing press, that was even reported by Newsweek. We know that happened. James Comey admits that he exonerated Hillary Clinton before the FBI interviewed her. He, He admits that in his new book, not a conspiracy. He's had to admit it because the facts did not match his narrative. How about the first draft of his uh, letter exonerating Hillary Clinton? The first draft of that accused her of gross negligence because obviously she was grossly negligent. She mishandled a ton of classified material and then she bleached all of the all of the materials. A later draft changed that phrase to extremely careless. Grossly negligent became extremely careless. Why is that? Because gross negligence can mean prison time and fines, and the politicized Barack Obama administration and Barack Obama's FBI, James Comey's FBI, didn't want that to happen. Uh, James Comey also admitted that he publicized that second uh, letter, that October letter, so that Hillary's inevitable regime would not be illegitimate. 
He didn't do it to hurt Hillary. He did it because he knew that she was going to win, and he wanted to give her all the political advantages he could going into her administration. That is the Obama FBI, the Obama DOJ. We know that Hillary Clinton mishandled emails. Uh, we, we don't know what kind of graft she was covering up because she wiped her servers. She destroyed federal records with bleach bit. And we know from Peter Strzok, that FBI official, we know from his texts that a redacted source writes, quote, the, right, the White House is running this. The White House is running this with regard to investigations in Donald Trump. We have it in those texts. Ari Fleischer tweeted it out today. The former press secretary for George W. Bush tweeted out, hey, how come no one's talking about this? The FBI said the White House is running this investigation. This Mueller investigation has gone on forever. I think at this point, they legitimately are investigating Manafort's cousins, sisters, nieces, lemonade stand that she had in Long Island in 1982. That's what, that's all they're going for. The Mueller investigation, it's gone on forever. It's clear that he doesn't have a smoking gun, you know, and a, a photo of Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin sunning together in Cabo. The, the uh, satire website Resistance Hole uh, ran a, a headline. They said, boom, we've got you, Donald Trump. A 13th century tapestry from Franciscan monks shows Trump and Putin colluding together. So, you know, that's what they're going on. They're going after totally irrelevant things. And this investigation now has unfettered anti-constitutional power. It's nakedly political. There's no more pretense that this is unbiased, that it's nonpartisan. It's just about law and order and patriotism. That's what we've been told. It is nakedly political. It always has been. Everything relating to Barack Obama is nakedly political. He's never done anything that isn't politics. It's all politics. The GOP would ignore this at its own peril. We cannot abide this fiction anymore that uh, this is, oh, that's unbiased. Oh, that's okay. They've been gunning for the Republican nominee since before he was the Republican nominee, or right around the time that he was. They've been gunning for him. They've been using every excuse in the book. It's nakedly political, and we need to fight back. Speaking of institutional wickedness, Google has now... <laughs> This is like a caricature of a story. Google's old motto from its code of conduct used to be, uh, don't be evil. Don't be evil. Okay, that's pretty funny, you know, ha, 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 whatever. They've repealed that code. <laughs> Google now, you know, which censors conservatives and has all of our data and is a you know, very spooky organization. They, they now don't say, don't be evil. They've replaced don't be evil with do the right thing. Okay, you think, what's the big deal? That tells us a lot. Don't be evil. Very simple. They had it for its entire existence, decades of existence. Then do the right thing. Huh. Do the right thing is much more Machiavellian. Do the right thing is, because what do the right thing says implicitly is that sometimes evil things maybe can be good. It's a sort of situational ethics. Don't be evil. They thought that don't be evil didn't get at what they were trying to do said, do the right thing. Okay, maybe do the right thing means sometimes you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet, get a little bit evil. What it also says, though, is that Google is becoming more overtly SJW, social justice warrior, overtly progressive. It's not don't be evil. It's not just be, be an umpire, don't do bad things. You can't just stand by now, according to them. You've got to actively push this SJW agenda, this social justice warrior agenda. And it's happening. We see it happening ourselves. We see it when they censor the Daily Wire. Now, when you search for Daily Wire articles, you get uh, Snopes results and PolitiFact results, fact, uh, left-wing fact-checkers 
that's, oh, no, you don't want to read the Daily Wire. That, oh, they're right wing. You don't read the left wing one instead. That's better. They don't do this to left wing websites. They do it to the, to right wing websites. YouTube, which is owned by Google, censors us all the time. I mean, we're constantly, my episode last week, I, I don't even remember what I was talking about. I was talking about some Democrat corruption and it just cut off right in the middle. They just censored. They said, we can't let this guy keep talking. They constantly demonetize conservative videos. They constantly censor conservative speech. Dennis Prager did a video about how you should not murder on the 10 commandments series. They said, no, this isn't suitable for college students. No, can't do it. Can't do it. Uh, Expect more of this to come. Obviously, they've been pushing a progressive narrative for a long time at Google. Now they're being overt about it. They're admitting it. It's only going to get worse. Speaking of great things getting worse, Starbucks. Starbucks is going full homeless camp now. So you remember earlier this month, uh, a black man was arrested at Starbucks, uh, and this became a big hullabaloo. And the reason he, the police were called, I suppose he wasn't arrested, the police were called. And it's because th- these guys came in and were just sitting at the table. And after a while, uh, one of the employees came up and said, hey, uh, you have to purchase a product in order to sit and use our space. You can't just sit here. This isn't like a public park. You've got to buy our product to be here. They said no. Which, are you kidding me? You go, uh, how, how rude and ridiculous. You go and you buy the product. And they said, no, we're not going to. So multiple times they come over and say, hey, you know, you got to buy something. They said no. And they asked them to leave and they said no. Like Bartleby the Scrivener. No, I'd prefer not to. No, I'd prefer not to. So eventually they called the police and this became some big, big news story. As though as though it's horrifying that an an employer, that a store says you have to buy their product to be in their space. Anywho, Starbucks, instead of saying, hey guys, you have to buy our product to be in our space, they're now saying, no, no, you don't need to buy anything. You can hang out here. You can use our bathrooms. Uh, Anybody who's in our space, even if they don't buy a product, they're customers which just isn't true because customer has a definition. <laughs> you can't, Starbucks can't change the definition of a word. This is, this customer has a meaning. That isn't true, but they're fighting against reality. And it, it, so it's about these bathrooms. You can use the bathrooms even if you don't buy anything. Why is it that these days all political fights are about bathrooms? That is really weird, isn't it? The transgender bathroom, the Starbucks bathroom. Why is that? I actually think because it's about who can use which bathrooms, who gets to use it, and who decides who gets to use it? Is it the people who own the bathroom or is it the mob? Which is it? Who decides who gets to use the bathrooms? And what we've decided is the mob does it. That's the, that's the progressive political views. The mob gets to decide who, who gets to use your property. The other thing is exclusiveness because exclusiveness is now considered a bad thing. If it's a men's bathroom, that means that it's not a women's bathroom. And if it's a women's bathroom, it means it's not a men's bathroom. But some men think that they're women or very much want to be women or just are culturally influenced to dress up like women. And so they want to use the women's bathroom, but they can't use the women's bathroom because they're not women because they're men. That became a major political fight and Barack Obama fanned those flames. Donald Trump did not. He said, for the five people who are genuinely confused about your gender, keep doing what you're doing. For everyone else, stop acting like a dummy. It's this exclusiveness why? Well, oh, what? You're saying I have to buy a product to use a space? That's, all, that's exclusive. Some people don't have $3 for a latte or don't you know, want to spend their $3 on a latte. The correct answer to that is then you don't get to use the space because that's the price of entry. But in the modern progressive democratic 
idea of things. Oh, how dare you could never say that. You could no women want to go to the men's room. Men want to go to the women's room. Probably more the latter. Oh, vagabonds want to use the bathroom at Starbucks and make it much worse for everybody because it'll just become a homeless camp. You know, you have to do that. How could you say no? How could you say no? And this brings us to the final point before I bring on our guest. Speaking of exclusiveness and nice things degrading themselves, we got. I will just talk briefly about the royal wedding. As Americans love the royal wedding, got a lot of viewership in the U.S., especially women love the royal wedding. They love it because we all like a fairy tale, and women in particular like the story of a princess marrying Prince Charming. This has always been true at all places in the world, in all cultures, forever. (laughs) And now we pretend to ourselves, because of feminism, that we're not allowed to like this anymore. So Disney says, no more princesses falling in love with princes. They're going to not, you know, that movie Moana doesn't even have a prince. Or some of the love stories are about sisterly love now or motherly love. They try whatever they can to resist this traditional story. And it happened at the royal wedding. The royal wedding was really awful to watch. I'm sorry to say, I think I'm the only person who's actually saying this. I bet a lot of people thought it though, which is you're in St. George's Chapel. You're in the aristocracy. You're in the, the monarchy. And it opens up on Ben E. King's Stand By Me. Stand By Me at the Royal Wedding. And it's not that I don't like Stand By Me. That's a nice song. I also like Van Morrison and and David Bowie. But I don't think that David Bowie should be played at a royal wedding, you know. (laughs) Maybe you open up with, uh, oh, Jesus, we adore thee, or some Anglican hymn, you know. So they had that aspect. Then a woman who, Meghan Markle, the new Duchess of Sussex, who who walked down the aisle and married another man seven years ago, till death do us part, that till death to his part turned out to be till two years from now to his part. So five years ago, she was married to another man and yet she walked down in white. I don't begrudge her, uh, her divorce when you get married in a church that was founded by the most famous divorcee in all of history, Henry VIII. That doesn't get to be a big issue, but even the, the farce of it to walk down as though it, it just punctures some of the magic of the fairy tale. Then when they walked out, it, the song that was playing was Etta James, This Little Light of Mine. Again, a lovely song, not appropriate for the English monarchy for this high church wedding. Uh, they walked out of there. Megan has a website now on the royal page that says she's proud to be a feminist. Oh gosh, this the, the monarchy wants to modernize. That's what all of the mainstream media are reporting, how good it is that we have a modern monarchy. Nobody wants a modern monarchy. If you modernize the monarchy, you don't make it better. You just destroy the monarchy because the monarchy is aristocracy. Aristocracy comes from aristos, which is Greek for the best, right? It's the best. It's supposed to elevate you. It's not supposed to reflect the people. That's democracy, demos, the people. Democracy reflects the people, the spirit of the age. Aristos represents the virtues and the best. The monarchy is supposed to be something to look up to, to elevate the people. If you modernize it and make it reflective of the people, you don't get a better monarchy. You just get another democracy and it's cheap and it's weird and it's not a fairy tale. Disney is doing it. The British royal family is doing it. Both of them should stop. It's very frustrating. We've got to get to this day in history and our wonderful guest. Before we get to that, I've got a second bite of Facebook and YouTube. We got a really good guest today. We're going to hear about some incredible stories escaping Nazi-occupied France during World War II. But if you are on Facebook or YouTube, you got to go to dailywire.com right now. Why? Well, it's 10 bucks a month, $100 for an annual membership. You get me. You get the Andrew Clavin Show. You get the Ben Shapiro Show. You get to ask questions in the mailbag. Uh, everybody can listen to the mailbag questions, but only subscribers can ask them. Many are called, fewer chosen. You get to ask questions in the conversation. Everybody can watch, but only subscribers get to ask the questions. 
Next one up is the big boss, Ben Shapiro, who's away right now. I talk a little bit more about the uh, royal wedding on Drew's show today, which became the Ben Shapiro radio show. And I'm sure that will be hilarious when Ben comes back in a fury that I was on his show while he was gone. That's a story for another time. Go to dailywire.com. We'll be right back with this day in history and you can return with your leftist tears tumbler. Yum, yum, yum. On this day in history, a lot of things happened in World War II. In 1940, a special unit in Germany carried out a mission and murdered more than 1,500 hospital patients in Prussia. This was an attack to kill the unfit, those people deemed unfit by the scientifically barbaric German government and Nazi government. Uh, By the way, that special unit reported back to headquarters in Berlin that the patients had been successfully evacuated. I suppose they were successfully evacuated to their eternal reward, but they were murdered in cold blood on earth in 1942. On this day in history, 4,300 Jews were deported from a Polish town to a Nazi camp at Sobibor, and all were gassed to death. That camp had five gas chambers. Quarter of a million Jews were killed there between 1942 and 1943. Uh, The German firm IG Farben set up factory outside of Auschwitz. And on this day in history, 1940, the French Ninth Army surrendered. This you might know, I'm waving the flag of the French Army right now, as a matter of fact. The French Army surrendered itself uh, as a nation. France would surrender uh, within the month. We're lucky enough today to be joined by Carol Engel Avriet, the author alongside of World War II veteran Captain George Starks of Coffin Corner Boys, One bomber, 10 men, and their harrowing escape from Nazi-occupied France. It is a wonderful read. Carol, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Michael. Carol, so this book, for uh, just to give a little overview of it, the book tracks 20-year-old George Starks on a 300-mile trek to Switzerland. He's got a fractured foot there. He'd been shot down over Nazi-occupied France. Uh, He's got a 20 millimeter shell fragment in his thigh. He comes face to face with Nazis. He barely evades capture. And yet these days, 20 year olds suffer nervous breakdowns when their parents forget to upgrade their iPhone data plans. How responsible do you think in your research for this book, the war was for shaping what we now call the greatest generation? Well, that's a, you raised some interesting questions there because really George was 19 when he first got his pilot's wing, so even younger than 20. The average age on that crew was 22. There was one of them that was 27, and to the rest of them, he was ancient. So they called him the old man Pops or Pappy. And um, it was an amazing thing, really, because George has often told me All 10 of them were from very different backgrounds, religious backgrounds, different socioeconomic, family situations, educational backgrounds, different. But they all had one thing in common. They were all patriots. And they all wanted to go to war to protect America. And um, so it's it's an interesting thing. And uh, in fact, last week, somebody asked me, you know, Carol, to whom did you write this book? Well, obviously people who enjoy reading about um, great heroes and World War II and all. But I have seven grandchildren, and I actually wrote the book for them because if we don't get these stories down and recorded, we're going to lose them. And I want my young grandchildren, they're a little too young right now to read it, but I want them to know 
what these men really did. Well, I love that point. I'm sorry, go ahead. I just said, you know, really they were boys. We call them men, but but they were really boys when they got started. Of course, unfortunately, through the through the war, they 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 grew up very quickly. So, well, I, it's the stories aspect that I I really like because they're the stories in this book are incredible. And my grandfather was a navigator on a B twenty four. He bombed a lot of Nazis in the war, and uh, so I grew up as a kid. I grew up hearing these stories. And kids today, they don't hear these stories. Uh, they'll, uh, I, I don't know what they hear. You know, a lot of these veterans are going up to their eternal reward uh, at a faster clip. So the, the people who live through it are, are leaving the earth. Do you think there's a, a risk here that these narratives are going to be lost to history? Obviously, there aren't a whole lot of books out like yours. There certainly aren't enough. Uh, how much are we going to remember in 50 or 100 years? Well, uh, you know, we... We, we need to get as many recorded as we can. I'm I'm doing my part trying to trying to get them down. This um this one book does have ten stories, uh, each of the crew, and what happened to them after they were shot down. Of course, now George Starks, the pilot, uh, is the primary person in the book because he goes he returns to Europe and and uh, later and and retraces his steps, and that's a wonderful part of that story. But George is still living. He's 94 and um, uh, has turned into a dear friend. It took us about three years to research the book and for me to interview him. But, you know, he'll be 95 in November. And um, only one other of the crew had been alive when I started this book. And that was actually the only Jewish member of that crew, Irv Baum. And uh, he unfortunately passed away about eight or nine months ago. But I was so privileged and thankful that I was able to interview him too before he did, before he did pass away. So, well, and you know, on this point, there were these multiple, uh, f- faith backgrounds, people, uh, Irv was Jewish, George, I suppose, Christian. And George uh, says at one point in the book, I need help, God, I can't do this by myself. Uh, they say there are no atheists in the foxholes. Uh, broadly in the culture, we see that religion is declining and uh, younger generations appear to be much less religious than older generations. Do you think it's the, the, the suffering of war trampling through France, surrounded by Nazis with a broken foot, uh, that brings out people's need for God? Uh, do, you, do you think that was the defining feature? Well, I think any time a person comes face to face with their mortality in a situation where their life is actually going to be on the line and might could end at any moment. I think that in and of itself produces a sort of a landscape for thinking about what may be eternal and what might not be eternal. And George certainly, as he was going along, um, reached that place, that point where he was at the end of his rope in human terms. And so what he did then was turn to, at that moment, what he felt might be a higher power that could possibly help him. And that's what he did. There's an incredible scene in the book where he it really literally thinks that he just cannot go on. And he has been without food for a number of days. He's been wet and cold and, you know, he's up in 
in snow country and he he just calls out he says god you know i i can't do this on my own i you're going to have to help me so and speaking of uh speaking of that higher power and uh, perhaps forgiving your enemies and loving your neighbor uh, we see in his later life captain starks and his wife betty joe they go back to france after the war uh, they, they find the civilians who risked their own lives to save his life. And broadly speaking, the United States makes friends with our enemies after wars. This is a habit of ours. We have a special relationship with Great Britain, although we fought two wars with them right at the beginning. Uh, Germany, Japan, Vietnam, on, Korea, on and on. Maybe North Korea soon, <laughs> depending on how yeah. this meeting goes next month. Yes, depending. Uh, so I want to know what insight did you gather from working with Captain Starks on uh, dealing with your former foes, dealing, you know, uh, burying hatchets? This guy's lived an incredible life. He's seen the world change dramatically. Uh, what that says for us individually and what it says for U.S. policy? Well, you know, really, when he returned to France, these were the people that had helped him. And actually, most of the people that he ran into um, did help him, but he, it took him a long time to hook up. This is the, this is the interesting part. It took him a long time to hook up with the actual organized underground or resistance. So from day one, uh, the people that helped him were just normal, average, everyday Frenchmen, men, women, and children. They were not part of an organized resistance. They just simply knew that, um, you know, they disliked the Germans for coming in and what they were doing to their country, and they wanted to do what they could with any American soldier or ally, you know, that they ran into. So to me, that was the most incredible thing because these people had everything to lose. Um, for example, the, the woman that he stayed with the very first night, okay, she had a little girl who was eight or nine years old. Her husband at that time was a POW. Polish POW with the Germans. And had she been caught, there is no question but what she would have been executed and probably her daughter as well, at the very least sent to a concentration camp. I mean, when they caught, as I think you, you write in the book, when they caught people who were housing uh, runaway American soldiers, they men, women, and children, they'd pull them out and they'd shoot them in the head. Right, exactly. So, so when when George was shot down and after and, and in this 300 mile trek to freedom in Switzerland, he vowed two things to himself. Number one, that if he ever if he made it, if he lived through the experience and got back to the States, he would never lose touch with his crew again as long as he lived. The second vow that he made to himself was that at some some point one day, if he could, he would go back to France and try to locate all those brave souls that had helped him and helped his men. And he lived to do both of those things. It's an amazing story. It's a really amazing story. And the book achieves something which I think is really incredible. It really almost makes you like the French. I hate to, I don't know that I could even say it on this, but it really does. I apologize for my French army flag joke. The book is Coffin Corner Boys. It's by Carol Engel Everett alongside Captain George Starks. It's a really uh, engrossing read, really enjoyable and tells a story that is quickly being forgotten. So read it so you don't forget it. Go get the book, Coffin Corner Boys. Carol, thank you so much for being here. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Michael. Good to be with you today. God bless. You too. So that was, wow, it's a, it's a really fascinating to talk to her and a really fascinating book. That's our show. So go read the book. I'll, we can talk about it tomorrow. You come back tomorrow, we'll talk about it. Uh, listen, guys, I'm, I'm like getting ready for my bachelor party. I'm getting ready to get married soon. We are, you know, send me, send those good vibes, man. Thoughts and prayers, I can take them. Um, and I will see you tomorrow. Get your mailbag questions in. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. The Michael Knowles Show is produced by Senia Villarreal. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer, Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Jim Nickel. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. The Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire Forward Publishing production. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018.